can tell it's a suit of Christ. I've got all these books around me. You feel like you're back in school. But anyway, is everybody who's coming here, can you notice anyone who's missing? See, most people are here. Okay, so today I'm going to uh, get some quotes from the suttas about uh, the story of meditation. And you may think you've heard all the stories of meditation, but I'm sure you haven't. So I'm going to start with the origin story of one of the monk's training rules. You can find out why I'm giving this example at the very end. This is the first origin story of the monk's third Parajika rule. The Parajika offences for monks and for nuns means if you break any of these uh, rules, you have to leave the monkhood immediately. You're not allowed to be a monk for the rest of your life. And this is the third training rule about the Parajikas for murder. Have I got you interested? At one time, <laughs> and you may think, what's he talking about this for? Well, you'll find out in the end. At one time, the Buddha was staying in the hall with the peaked, ro- uh, sorry, with the peaked roof in a great wood near Vaisali, which was north of the Ganges. At that time, the Buddha spoke to the monks in many ways about unattractiveness. This is the word we use, asupa. They're looking at things and deliberately seeing their unattractive qualities in order so you don't get attached to them. He spoke in praise of unattractiveness, of developing the mind in unattractiveness, and of the attainment of unattractiveness. And the Buddha then addressed the monks. Monks, I wish to go into solitary retreat for half a month. No one should visit me except the one who brings me alms food. And that's what the monks do during our range retreats. And some of the monks get the opportunity to go on such solitary retreat, you know, many times during the year. So even uh, during the range retreat which just passed, I had the opportunity in, I think, the beginning of September to do two weeks. And so I just was in my hut. And honestly, the only person who I saw during that time was not the monk who brought me arms food, because no monk brought me arms food. Nicholas did. Nicholas, was that true? (laughs) So he brought me the arms food. And... That's how you can have lots of lovely simplicity. Yes, Venerable Sir, they said to the Buddha. Soon afterwards, the monks reflected 
that the Buddha had praised unattractiveness in many ways. And they devoted themselves to developing the mind in unattractiveness in many different facets, what we call the asupa meditations. As a consequence, especially with the Buddha in retreat and people forbidden from going to visit him, they became troubled by their own bodies, ashamed of and disgusted with them. These are the similes in the time of the Buddha. Just as a young woman or man, someone fond of adornments with freshly washed hair would be ashamed, humiliated and disgusted if the carcass, the dead body of a snake, a dog or a human were hung around their neck. Just so those monks were troubled by their own bodies. They took their own lives, took the lives of one another, and they went to Migalandika, they called him the sham recluse, and said to this Migalandika, please kill us, you will get our bowl and robes. And so hired for a bowl and robes, Migalandika killed a number of monks, he then took his blood-stained knife to the river. While washing it, he became anxious and remorseful, thinking, this is Ajahn Bamadi's translation, what the heck have I done? <laughs> I've made so much demerit by killing good monks. Then a god from the realm of the Lord of Death, it's Mara's realm, coming across the water, said to Migalandika, Well done, superior man, you're truly fortunate. You've made much merit by helping across those who hadn't yet crossed. And Migalandika, who was obviously not a highly intelligent man, thought, Oh, so it seems that I'm fortunate that I've made much merit. He then went from Kuti to Kuti, from Wihara to Wihara, and said, Who hasn't crossed yet? Who hasn't crossed yet? Who can I help across? The monks who still had worldly attachments became fearful and terrified, with goosebumps all over. Only those who were free from worldly attachments were unaffected. Then on a single day, Migalandika killed one monk, two monks, three, four, five, ten, twenty, thirty, forty, even sixty monks. At the end of the half month, when the Buddha came out of seclusion, he said to Venerable Ananda, Ananda, why is the Sangha of monks so reduced? And because of this story, it's well known amongst us that even when I go on retreat for two months, when I come out, they say, where all the monks gone? <laughs> so they're still all here. And Ananda told him what had happened, adding, please give another instruction, sir, for the Sangha of monks to become established in perfect insight. 
Well then, Ananda, bring together in the assembly hall all the monks who live supported by Visali in the neighborhood. Yes. When he had done so, he went to the Buddha and said, Sir, the Sangha of monks is gathered. Please do as you think appropriate. Then the Buddha went to this assembly hall, sat down on a prepared seat and addressed the monks. Monks, when stillness by mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, it is peaceful and sublime, a satisfying state of bliss, and it removes bad and unwholesome qualities on the spot whenever they arise. Just as a great unseasonal storm in the last month of the summer removes the dust and dirt from the air, just so when stillness by mindfulness of breathing is developed and cultivated, it is peaceful, sublime, and removes bad and unwholesome qualities on the spot whenever they arise. And how is the stillness by mindfulness of breathing? I like that Ajahn Bamali has translated, he trusts me, he knows this is true, that samadhi is translated as stillness. How is it cultivated in this way? A meditator sits down in a wilderness at the foot of a tree or in an empty hut. They cross their legs, straighten their body, set up mindfulness in front of them. And he knows I don't agree with that. Actually, yeah, uh, no. Simply mindful, he breathes in. Mindful, he breathes out. So if anyone wanted to know where the mindfulness of breathing uh, meditation came from, now you know its origin story. When the monks were doing the uh, super meditations, they ended up killing themselves. That's why I haven't taught you a super <laughs> I would go to jail if any of you kill yourself. Because what the monks were doing, because the Buddha taught it, but then disappeared, so people couldn't ask questions about it, they misunderstood exactly how it's cultivated and how much. So that's like the origin of the Anapanasati Sutta. So now, you read out the Anapanasati Sutta. Now, to show you what I've been doing with this Anapanasati Sutta and why translations here, sometimes they say, is this your own translation or what actually is it? You already mentioned there to go to a wilderness, a quiet place. But what the Buddha said, and I translate it not word for word, but loosely, but keeping the meaning. You go to a quiet, secluded place. It doesn't have to be a forest or a wilderness. I've been to many forests and wildernesses in my life, and some of them are not really conducive. There's too much noise, especially in the evening from cicadas. Sometimes the forest, and there's one a forest monastery, or not forest monastery, like a reserve, over in Hong Kong. I never thought there could be such a place in Hong Kong. And it's beautiful. It was quiet, 
except for the fact they had an army camp nearby and all the training exercises, you could hear them you know, from that spot and planes going overhead. So a secluded spot, I think you can understand, is something like China Grove. Really peaceful. There's no external noise. We don't have any army camps close by. We don't have much traffic noise. And sometimes the forests in Australia are some of the quietest places in the world. And then, of course, it's not just forests. Now, the word in Pali is like Aranya. That's why they call the forest monks Aranyawasi, people who live in the forest. But the word for forest is not just uh, Aranya. Aranya means unruled. So wilderness is a good translation. The places where people don't go. It could be deserts, it could be caves, it could be uh, mountains. Even though in some mountains there's no trees, that qualifies as a forest reserve in a sense of no trees, but it's Aranya, it's wilderness area. And so also, the Buddha actually did say, I think it's in one of the commentaries, that some of these places, you know, like where the Buddha became enlightened, it was like before it was called Bodhgaya, it was called Uruwela. And uh, he said that was a beautiful place to meditate. There were few, few flies and mosquitoes. That's why this place fails in that area. <laughs> But if you're careful, you can keep the, the flies out. And the flies only come out during the middle of the day. At night time, it's fly-free, mostly. And there's very few mosquitoes here, which is lovely, over in Thailand or in Singapore, Malaysia, in some of these monasteries. I remember going to, was it Pulu? What's the one just to the north? We had a retreat there once with the Buddhist Fellowship. Not See? No, not because it's in, in north of Singapore, part of Singapore. I think now they use it for an army, um, army exercise. Kuru Island? Doesn't sound Kusu like. Island? Could be that, but anyway, just north of Changi or just outside of Changi, you get a boat over there. It takes about an hour. They used what? Pulau Bin. Oh, Pulau Bin. That's right. Yes. And there, it's a beautiful, quiet place. But there were so many mosquitoes there when I went there. It was the first time I saw so many mosquitoes in Singapore. I thought Singapore was pretty much so developed that mosquitoes didn't have any home. So they would go over to Pulau Ubin and feed on the tourists. Anyhow, so you find a quiet, secluded place and these days, I'm quite surprised. You know, I don't know if any of you visited Kusla Vihara, that's where Ajahn Santuti is. If you have, you know, because of modern building materials, and it's very clued up on those, you can go into one of those rooms and it's so well insulated. 
Inside you can't hear the noise of the traffic on the Brookton Highway, just about a kilometre away. And I was just so impressed with that. So, the secluded place, if you want to get a secluded place in Singapore, you can. It just costs a little bit more money putting insulation in the walls, no triple glazed windows, no properly insulated on the rims, and a roof which is insulated as well. It can be done. And it's amazing when you go into those places, you know, sometimes you do think you've left the world. There's no sound from outside. So that's the first thing with the mindfulness of breathing, anapanasati. You go to a quiet, secluded place. Now, in the way the, the it's usually translated, the word-for-word word translation, I brought this one out as well. Here, a monk gone to the forest or to the root of a tree to an empty hut. What that means is you go to the quiet place. Sit down. Having folded his legs crosswise, set his body erect, erect. Is that comfortable? Folding your legs, body erect? For some people it is, but any of you are getting old. I'm not getting old. I'm already old. <laughs> or you've had some accident. It's amazing how many young Australian meditators have had sports accidents in their life. It's not comfortable at all for them. And it doesn't work. So how I translated this was sit down comfortably. It's a very loose translation, but it's far more meaningful. So you don't try and have a perfect posture as you see the Buddha over there. The one over there. You try and have a comfortable posture. And how that is, is really up to you. I don't know that none of you are using those Zen stools. You know, I think we did have a few out there. Could you go and bring one in quickly? It's in the sound room, I think there was one. And the reason I bring it in, because for some people it really works and it's so simple but really comfortable. Those ones. You fold, you, like you kneel down and you put it under, on top of the, the calves underneath your thighs. And it supports your bottom but doesn't put many, much pressure on your knees. It's very brilliant. You can leave it out here because people might want to try it later on. And they're light, and some people, they used to make their own, so it actually can um, uh, disassemble, and you can put it in your bag, just three pieces of wood, and then you put it together, and it becomes a very comfortable uh, meditation apparatus. And you can get the height as you want, the angle as you want, and many people upholster this. So that's a nice soft on your but, brilliant invention. So anyway, you make yourself comfortable. Or if that doesn't work, you have chairs, like we have here. You can sit on those. Or you have these um, chairs. I don't know what you call them. 
It's in the front here. You see a few of these cushioned things. And one over there. People design all of these things. I think you did not bring these things with you. I think there's a pe- were left. Other people had used these before. So that's actually to sit down comfortably. And the next thing you do, what the word-by-word word translation, um, keep the body erect and establish mindfulness in front of you. And when I first read that, even as a student, didn't know so much. What does it mean, establish mindfulness in front of one? Where are you? Does that mean in front of your head? Because most Westerners are up here. Does that mean put your mindfulness up here? What about in front of you, where your heart is? Is that where you live? It didn't make any sense to me, in front of you. Because this is breath meditation, people think in front of you means in front of your nose. That's not where you live. I don't live in my nose. What it means is the word parimukhang. And it can mean in front, but not spatially, but give it the most priority, make it the most important. So I translated this as, and give priority to establishing mindfulness. And I really stick by that, make it the first thing you do. What is mindfulness? Somebody asked me that question in the interview time, I won't say who it is, but you come on a retreat, and on the fourth or fifth day, you ask what mindfulness is. Well done. Because sometimes we think, loving kindness, what's loving kindness? What is peace? Sometimes people think we understand these words. A lot of the times we don't. We kind of assume we know what these things are. So I know that there are very elaborate definitions of mindfulness in if you ever do mindfulness-based cognitive therapy. I would never get permission in United States to teach that. I'm not qualified. I haven't got certificates. I've never gone through the courses. I was teaching meditation before those courses existed. I don't think even the Buddha would be allowed to, <laughs> to do that. But also some of the definitions of mindfulness. It's a nice try, but I always say that real mindfulness is where you're in this present moment. Because I can't see how if you've got awareness of the past or the future, that's not real mindfulness. It's memory or fantasy present moment awareness, and the other thing which is important is silence, inner silence. Otherwise you're not really being aware of what's happening. On the first day I told that story, Lao Tzu, seeing 
with his uh, attendant on a walk where everyone was supposed to be quiet, you know, seeing a beautiful sunset. You can actually try that. There's some beautiful sunsets around. And if you say and think, what a beautiful sunset, you're not experiencing the sunset anymore. You're only experiencing the words. And words can be deceptive. To prove that point, some years ago, I was visiting the Bhikkhuni Monastery, Dharmasara. I think for doing some sort of ceremony. And they asked me, please, please, can you give us a teaching? I didn't have time to give them a talk. So I said, okay, but it's going to be a quick teaching. I said, okay. So I said, well, I, I do need to go and use the toilet first. Where's the monk's toilet? I know I think Venal Hasapanya looked a bit surprised, because where the monk's toilet is, you know, just I helped design that building. That's the old, in the old days anyway, when this happened, it was in the old uh, nun's cottage at Dhammasara. So she said, it's over there, Ajahn Brahm. She says, toilet, male. So I went there, and sure enough, it's actually written on the door, a male toilet. So I pretended, only pretended, I didn't do anything rude, I pretended to urinate on the door. What was that stupid monk doing? Well, look, that's what it says. It says monk's toilet. You pointed it out, that's where it is. It's on the door. That's what it says. They said, no, it means monk's toilet inside. Well, why don't you add the other sign, inside, <laughs> instead of just saying <laughs> male's toilet? You're deceiving me. Words can deceive. They're never... Um, can describe exactly where something is. So even here, we have male toilet, female toilet. All it says on those doors is last person in, just turn the lights off. Trouble is, if you're in a toilet, sometimes you're so quiet, you know, sitting down, that people don't know if you're still in there, if you're the last person in and they turn the lights off when you're inside doing your business. <laughs> so, <laughs> please be careful with signs. They are approximations. They're not precise. Silence gives you precise information. Not uh, distorted by names. Who are you? You've got a name, is that who you are? Of course not. That's only just a very, very rough description of who you are. Anyhow, so my definition of mindfulness is when the mind's in the present moment and you're silent, what you see, what you feel, what you hear, it's not distorted. That means you're aware. Not properly aware yet, but you're starting to be aware. And this is one of the things which 
You know, when I was with the other monk who we started this monastery with, Ajahn Jakava, he's still a wonderful friend. And he always used to tell me that I was really good on teaching the, the deeper parts of meditation, nimittas and jhanas. I love talking about that stuff. However, how many of you can do it? And people complain, oh yeah, Ajahn Brahm teaches about all these amazing things, we get so much desire for these things, we never get them, and so we get a bit frustrated by the way he talks. So I said, can you please talk more about the beginning part of meditation? How you get your mind quiet and peaceful and mindful, so these other things become accessible for you. So, I've spent a lot of time developing ways to establish mindfulness as a priority. Not mindfulness of the breath yet, just mindfulness. And that's one of the reasons why any of you have heard my guided meditations. I usually start with what in Buddhism we call kayagata sati, the mindfulness of the body. And even there, you know, the Buddha kept on saying that that's really important as a start for your meditation. What does that mean, kayagata sati? To do that even before you start looking at the breath. And you may have heard those guided meditations I do every Friday night when I'm in Nolamara. What you do is, first of all, you, you become, you ask yourself, how do my feet feel? If I've got lots of time, how do my toes feel? I ask that of you right now. How do your toes feel? If you can't feel them, just wiggle them. You get awareness of your toes. A lot of time when I do this, I found actually my toes are not comfortable. One may be squashed under the weight of, in this case, my calf. And if you continue like that, there'll be pain, aches there, and that will disturb the meditation. So you do the mindfulness, but even from the very beginning, I introduce the kindfulness. What kindfulness means, the combination of kindness and mindfulness. You start with mindfulness, you're aware my toe is squashed, and the kindness recognizes the importance of doing something about it. Moving, adjusting. You know, the, it's okay to be mindful, but if you don't do anything about it, it doesn't work. This was one of the stories which uh, I thought about when I was telling the story about the anger-eating demon. That once there was this very wealthy lady, and one evening she went to the Brahm Center to listen to a talk. I try to be fair to all parts of Buddhism which I'm supposed to support, not just the Buddhist Fellowship. She went to the Brahm Center to listen to a talk and because she was going out that evening there had been many robberies in Singapore. There's obviously a gang of thieves were around. And this lady was so wealthy she had a guard on the front of her house. So she told the guard, 
look, I'm going to the monastery or the temple today to listen to a talk, but there are thieves around. Many neighbors have been burgled. Please be mindful while I'm away. And the guard said, Madam, I go to many meditation courses like you do. I, I will be mindful. I'm a very mindful guard. Okay, be mindful. So off she went to listen to a talk. And when she came home, she found her house had been ransacked by the burglars. They'd taken almost everything. So she started scolding her guard. I told you to look out for the burglars and be mindful. And she replied, ma'am, I was mindful. I saw the burglars going in and I noted burglar going in, burglar going in, burglar going in. I saw jewelry going out, jewelry going out, jewelry going out, jewelry going out. I saw their truck going in, truck going in, truck going in, truck going in. I saw your safe in the back of the truck being driven away. Safe going out, safe going... I was mindful. That's how I've been taught mindfulness. I know that's a little bit... <laughs> a little bit cruel to the Vipassana tradition. But nevertheless, that's not mindfulness, is it? Or is it? Is that enough? Real mindfulness, you're aware, it gives you an obligation to act dutifully when you're aware, to be kind. So what you do, you just ring up the police or you lock the doors, you don't just note. You actually do something, caring. Actually, not really doing something, but you can't sort of um, attack those burglars and you know, call the police. That's a kind and responsible thing to do. So anyway, that's what mindfulness is. So you start with your feet and relax them to the max. It's a beautiful saying, relax to the max. Yeah, okay, it's a slogan, but it's actually a powerful one. When you start relaxing your body, you get to your ankles, relax them, your legs, your knees. How many of you have comfortable knees? A lot of times, when you are mindful, you can see there's a tightness, a tension there. And you can literally imagine those knees. You don't need to be an expert on anatomy and just learn how to relax some of the, the muscles or ligaments or anything in your knees. You can do that. And I would also say that there was one lady in interview today, and this is not the first lady on this retreat. This happens very regularly. She was moving during her meditation, involuntary. And if you're moving involuntary, you're not being taken over by a ghost, not even on Halloween's night. They don't do that. All that you're doing, because you're relaxing to the max, you're allowing the body to do the adjustments. And sometimes it moves in weird ways, sometimes it's contorted. One of the first times I noticed that, you know, personally, you know, I think I mentioned it to you, sometimes I was, as a young monk, 
As a young meditator, I was bent over because I was sleepy. I was a young man doing lots and lots of things, not sleeping enough, and you're tired. And of course, a lot of times, you know, would notice that and be kind of ashamed. You know, I shouldn't be um, bending over. If I see any of you bending over, continue, please. Don't try and do anything. This is what your body needs right now. Be kind. And when it was bent over, I know there was another monk I was with at the time, a French monk. He was a control freak. You never saw him uh, slouching in his meditation. He was always dead straight. And he hardly talked. And many of us at that time thought that this French monk was about that close to enlightenment. You know, hardly ever sort of, on uh, the all-night sits, he would always be dead straight. Everyone else was really sort of bent over and just really dull. And once he told me, it's actually disrobed after about three or four years. And he was a good friend of mine. One day he told me, he said, sometimes when those all-night sits, I'd open my eyes and see you, Ajahn Brahm, just bent over, almost your head hitting the floor. And he said, I was jealous. I wish I could do that. He was a control freak. He was always worried what other people thought of him. And that caused him always to be straight. And that also caused him to disrobe. He had no happiness. He just endured all that time. So this is actually the mindfulness. You see your body, you're kind to it, and you trust your body. It's amazing what happens when you do that. The mindfulness of the body heals you. So often, look, there was, she's not here today, one of our meditators, you know, is a key part of our Buddhist society. She's getting a bit elderly now. But like many women have breast cancer, you know, just had you know, the breasts removed. I think it was just the next day, just after the surgery. You know, she came to, was it Jana Grove? Yeah, it was to Jana Grove. Said, what are you doing? you just got this big wound on you. I said, yeah, but I was just meditating. And even when the doctor, before, remember she was talking uh, recently, she said, sometimes the doctors did these biopsies. They were going to you know, put this um, big needle in her breast and just pull out you know, some of what was supposed to be the, the tumours, the cancer part. And they always said, this is going to hurt, this is going to hurt, to warn her. But she could relax so much, she didn't hurt at all. She's a really good meditator. And said, that's what happens with meditation on the breath. Sorry, with meditation on the body. You can relax so much. You don't control the body. You don't say, I must not flinch, I must not flinch, I must not flinch. You just relax. And then your body relaxes with you. And all these things happen. And I couldn't believe just how quickly, you know, she came out of surgery and how quickly everything healed. Anyhow, uh, that's what happens when you do mindfulness properly. 
you get to know your body and all the wonderful results of it. And I already mentioned some of the stuff which I've gone through and how you can heal, uh, what's it called, food poisoning, how you can heal like coughs. There's okay, here we go. The, when I went to South Korea, an uh, invitation by some of the monks of the Jogji order to teach some meditation, you know, it was up in the mountains and the snow season, there was a, a lot of people skiing up there and they wanted a couple of people to go on a walk through those mountains. Ajahn Gunha was there, but his doctor said, no, you're not healthy enough. I didn't have a doctor, so I was free to go for the walk. <laughs> but afterwards, it was so cold, when I got back to my room, I started not sneezing, but just you know, the, please excuse me, the snot, salival fluid, kept on just dripping out of my nose. And I couldn't stop it. It was the start of a cold. And then, what did I do? I said, oh, well, I better get my act together because there was going to be an interview on the TV in half an hour. And that's a bit scary. You know, it was live interview. I think it was uh, career-wide. Only South Korea, not North Korea. And if you're being interviewed and your, your nose is dripping, that's not a good reputation you're building up. But you know, for some reason, I wasn't at all worried. I just sat down, made myself comfortable and started meditating. I wasn't meditating on the breath. In this case, I was meditating on my nose. Just relaxing it. Being kind to it. I've done this too often. I know what happens. Just only half an hour, after about 20 minutes, you know, the liquid stopped coming out of my nose. It just stopped. It didn't clog up. The nose was clear. And I just could go to that interview just, you know, pretty normal, with no uh, indications of anything wrong with my nose. It's actually what you can do. I've done that several times when you really needed to. And it's not willpower. It's kindfulness power. Kind to your body. It's almost like I say to my body, look, I know you really need to do this, but I'm going to give an interview for so many thousands of people on TV. Please, cooperate. And I work with my body, and it stops. It's not a magical power, it's just trusting your body and being kindful to it. So when you cultivate the mindfulness of the body, the kindfulness of the body, you get to the point where your body is so relaxed. And there's an interesting aspect of this which I've never read in any book, but it's true and I make use of it. When your body is very relaxed, you can know because it feels delightful. There's a special sort of sensation which I look for 
deliberately look for, and the, I don't make happen. I know it's there somewhere. You just have to relax a bit more and look for how your body feels. And even like an old monk, you, know, you feel this beautiful, delightful sensation in your body. I'll say what that is in a moment, but when I noticed that, I was mindful of that, and it got deeper, more pleasurable. And I also noticed the more pleasure I felt with a relaxed body, just the more I relaxed, the more still I became. The delight took you into deeper states of peace and relaxation of your body. So anyway, when you do relaxation that way, you're of your body, you're setting up mindfulness as a priority. Not in front of you, but all over you. And that's where you're, it's important you set up that, because otherwise you get sick. And, no, this is, and they, I said, when are they coming? The Cancer Support Association, I think, coming in another month to monastery. No, no, I think they've... Yeah, soon anyway. And anyway, when they come to monastery to teach them meditation, that's why they come here. You teach them the awareness of the body. So you can get a cancer and just zap, zap, zap. You can actually be aware of it and be kind to it. Uh, the anger-eating monster invaded your palace, your body. Doesn't belong there. Get out, tumor. What are you doing in here? You don't belong. That's not the right way. Instead, you say to that tumor, welcome. I've got a big body, especially me. <laughs> we have plenty of space in here for both of us. Welcome. You take away that stress, that anger, that negativity of trying to get rid of things. It's amazing what happens. Sometimes those tumors vanish. We've actually seen this. Some of those disciples, they go to the doctor and they're going to have an operation. Before they have an operation, this was actually in Singapore. I forget which hospital. So the doctors you know, have to take another scan before the operation to see how the, the cancer has developed. And after they did the scan, they said, oh, we have to do it again. There's something wrong with the machine. And I always tell you, if that happens, and the doctor says, we have to do it again, there's something wrong with the machine. Yeah. <laughs> Nothing wrong with the machine. They do it again, and it's gone. They don't know why. I know why. Because they've been meditating with kindfulness, and it works. That's, you know, when, when people have told me they've done that, and it happens, you just make, imagine the response which I get. The, the work satisfaction of a monk. <laughs> You've taken a huge amount of suffering out of a family's life. It's beautiful. That's what I do it for. Anyway, so that's where the mindfulness is established. Then what do you do? You relax the body, 
then it's very easy to go into this present moment because all the time you've been watching the body, it's always in the present moment. You can't watch a feeling which happened a few moments ago. It's not right there, you can't really see it. You kind of remember it, but it's not the same. You're in the present moment and also the, the feelings in the body. How many of you gone to see the doctor and they say, how does it feel? Well, it hurts. There's this one Australian uh, doctor who told me the patient came t- into his room and he said, it hurts, I'm sick. And the doctor said, where does it hurt? And he said, everywhere. It's not really specific. He said, well, explain more. And the patient says that when he touches his forehead, it hurts. He touches his nose, it hurts. He touches his chest, it hurts. He touches his knees, it hurts. He touches his feet, it hurts. And the doctor was smart. He said, you've got a broken finger. (laughs) As a kind of joke, but it also shows just how hard it must be to be a practicing doctor to get the symptoms from the patients. Because our language, our descriptions, how many types of pain are there? And just how can you describe all of that pain? It's hard. So you can't be specific. And that's actually one of the reasons why that as you get more mindful of your body, you get to know it more. You may not have a word for it, but you know that type of feeling, I've got itchy nose. That's what I call it. And somebody think, oh, you better get that checked. Shut up. I know what my itchy nose is. It's just a little bit of hay fever, that's all. I've seen that many times. I'm used to it. I know about it. So anyway, your own mindfulness, you don't need to give things words. You know them without words. Now sometimes, I am getting old now and I see so many people. And it happens sometimes that people, they come on a retreat. I remember you. They say, what's my name? So I say, Dengue Girl. That's how I remember you. And you'll always be Denki Girl. <laughs> What's my name? Ajahn Brahm? Am I? That's not my official name. Official name is Ajahn Brahm Wangso. I was given this name by the former king of Thailand, uh, Chao Kun Prat Wisuti Sangwaratera. Can you remember that? <laughs> of course not. So all these names we have, just, you see me, you know who I am. See you, I know who you are. You don't need names. In fact, the names can be quite uh, deceiving and they stop you seeing who you really are. So anyway, you become silent. And just like when you are mindful and silent, it's peaceful. And even then, energy starts to come up you get to the, the joyful silence. Honestly, I love silence. In fact, some of the memories I have, I think I already mentioned to you, over in UK, going there in winter time, when it was a really cold spell, when there was snow everywhere and no one was outside. All the animals were hibernating, all the human beings were inside their houses. There were no cars on the road, no animals scurrying through the forest, 
no birds in the sky, no even aircraft you know, on the, the major flight routes. That was lovely. The whole of that southern part of UK was still. There was no wind also, that was amazing. Absolute silence. When I start, stopped walking, it's like the earth stopped as well. No sound at all. That was gorgeous. And I will never forget that. Now some people can't forget the times they were abused or the traumas they felt. And I've always been looking for a word to reflect on the beauty and the wonderful experiences you had. Because they leave the same type of indelible memory that a bad experience, a trauma has. It's like a trauma, but perfectly pleasant. You can remember it. We call it like telling the story. I remember that, even though it was many, many years ago. And it gives me peace and joy. There's lots of ways that mindfulness or kindfulness can be a source of so much joy and pleasure for you. Good pleasure. Anyway, the mindfulness of breathing. So once you've done those beginnings and you've got mindfulness or kindfulness pretty well established, you don't have to have it fully established because you're now going to establish it on the breath. A lot of times you don't have to do anything because the breath is the only thing left. Everything else has stopped. The only thing when your your body is nice and still and relaxed and you're not thinking, the past and future disappeared. What else is happening? <sighs> Just breathing. And by that time the breath is usually quite pleasant. And this is again being honest, I never go looking for my breath when I meditate. I establish mindfulness really powerfully on my body first of all, then the body relaxes, disappears, make sure I'm in the present moment and silent, make sure the mindfulness is there. And I do nothing. I ask, you know, what am I aware of right now? And it's a breath. It's the only thing left. And it's also really nice. If you try and establish the breath, if you do it, it's never as nice as if you let it come to you. So anyway, how did the Buddha say this? Breathing in long, he understands I breathe in long. Or breathing out long, he understands I breathe out long. Breathing in short, he understands I breathe in short. Or breathing out short, I understand I breathe out short. How I translated it. When the in breath or what, when the in breath and out breath are long, you are aware that they are long. When the in breath and out breath are short, you're aware that they are short. The repetition is removed, and sometimes when you remove repetition, it's much easier to understand. But even this, or should actually, I usually don't say that anymore. When the in breath and out breath are long or short, you know what they are. Those are the first two stages. But nevertheless, you don't have to do both stages. Because, you know, being rebellious, I started to contemplate 
How short is short? How long? What if your breath is in the middle somewhere? Does this length of breath qualify as short or as long? Sometimes you realize that the meaning of what the Buddha said was just you know how the breath is doing, short or long, or in the middle, or kind of you know, short middle, a short, short, short medium, or medium long. You know, like all the, all the sizes of clothes you have, you know, short, medium, extra medium, super extra medium, or whatever. And that's like your breath. You don't have to do this breath and that breath. You just, you're breathing, you kind of know how it feels. If you don't do that way, there is alternatives to those you know, two early ways. You can start to uh, have a mantra along with the breath. Like, you know, in Thailand, for those of you who learned meditation from the Thai tradition, you do budho with the breath, breathing in, bud, breathing out, ho. And I'm going to tell another story. I'm going to go over time as usual, so please excuse me. This was a story I was telling the, the monks at Bodhinyana a couple of days ago. There was this, this was told to me personally by Ajahn Juan, who lived in Putok, he's one of the forest monks. Unfortunately, he died in a big plane crash where many forest teachers died many, many years ago. But I saw him a few months before he passed away. And as one of the villagers had come to tell him in one of the nearby forest monasteries, an elephant had come in to the monastery and just roared. And the head monk there just jumped out the window in fear. Because these monks, these elephants, had actually squashed you know, many of the uh, kutis. They didn't like them. So Ajahn Juan looked at me and said, do you want to go over and meet the elephants? I said, yeah. <laughs> I was a bit rebellious. Yeah, why not? So I went up there, but before I went up there, he told me, be careful, because sometimes you don't know if you're going to be afraid. And he told the old forest monk story of the monk who wasn't afraid of tigers. This monk, when he was wandering through the remote areas of Thailand, he came across a village and said, look, I'm a forest monk. Can you please show me a nice place in the forest so I can sit and meditate? You always had to report in because the following morning they'd have to make food for you, for your arms round. So they said, well, it's better if you stay in the, in the village this evening. And the reason is because there was a tiger in the area and it's killed many of our water buffalo and even some of our children. It would be dangerous for you to stay in the forest. So he said, and a, a, a tiger, really? Yes. Great. I am not afraid of tigers. I always wanted to meet one. A very courageous monk. So are you sure? He said, yes. So they took him into the forest and into where the tiger path, you know, through the jungle, met one of the main paths. He said, right, this is where I'm going to put my mosquito net tonight. So they helped him. Are you absolutely sure? He said, yes. So he erected his mosquito net umbrella there, like the Thai forest monks do. And then he sat there, and the villagers left as soon as they could. They were afraid of the tiger. 
So then, when the sun went down and things went quiet, he was meditating, he was meditating. With his breath, in breath, board, out breath, door. And then, he heard a sound in the jungle of an animal coming towards him. It could be anything. It was dark. But he noticed his mantra started becoming Buddha, Buddha, Buddha. <laughs> and then the animal came closer. And he could kind of assess the size of the animal by how it brushed against the trees. It was a big animal. Buddha, 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 Buddha went even faster. And then, as it came even closer to him, he reached out for his flashlight and shined it. Tiger, 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 tiger. (laughs) His mantra changed to tiger. (laughs) And he said, the fear took over. He lost his mindfulness. He didn't know how he had jumped out of the mosquito net. That just vanished from his memory, or his mindfulness. And he was running, running into the village, shouting, Tiger, 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 Tiger! You know, the, the Thai word is, Sir Kong, Sir Kong. <laughs> and there's a rule that monks should not run. You know why? Your robes fall off, yes. <laughs> All of them. (laughs) So this bald-headed, so-called monk, because he had no brown robes on him, (laughs) ran into the village totally naked. (laughs) Letting everybody see everything, shouting, Tiger, Tiger, Tiger! And he became known as a monk who was not afraid of tigers. <laughs> and that's what Ajahn Juan told me. So be careful with even elephants. So, but anyway, that with, if you'd use a mantra, instead of just knowing short or long, get a mantra which is useful for you. And having taught for so many years in Australia, I found the most useful mantra is as you breathe in, you can say, breathe in peace. Or breathe in if you've got a sickness, breathe in health. You can choose whichever thing you want to breathe in, but you don't just say the word. If it's like peace, I tell people to imagine just like a symbol of peace, like a dove is coming in to your mind every in-breath. And as you breathe out, the best way is always let go. All the the rubbish, the problems, all the stuff which you have done, other people have done to you. Let that actually be on the out-breath, like riding it out of your system. Breathe in peace. Breathe out, let go. Breathe in peace. Breathe out, let go. And that makes the breath more interesting. If you have, like a cancer, Breathing in health, 
Breathing out tumor. Breathing in health. Breathing out tumor. It actually works. We have to have that confidence in it. Peacefully enough, you don't question, you just do. You imagine whatever you think a tumor is like physically, like riding your breath through your nose, out into the world, freeing you. <laughs> so that becomes those first stages of breath meditation. And then uh, the next two, sta two stages of breath meditation. And this one, sometimes I get frustrated at even very good monks. They, I don't know why they don't translate this properly. After you've been aware of your breath and you know it's long or short or you do buddho or whatever with the breath, that just allows the mindfulness to stay with the breath a bit more easily. You make it more interesting, not just so, so bland. Then you learn to experience the whole of the breath as you breathe in and out. That's what happens naturally anyway. Your awareness gets stronger. Just being aware of your breath, look at my finger. I'm not going to hypnotize you, so don't <laughs> worry. Look at the finger, it's moving from uh, your left to the right, and from the right to the left. You can see the mo finger move in front of me. That's just noticing like the in-breath and out-breath. Noticing the hold of the in-breath as you see the finger from the very beginning all the way to the end. From the end all the way to the beginning. You see the hold of the breath. The Sutta says it's called the whole body of breath. But my goodness, the body doesn't mean physical body. If you try to be aware of your whole body, the whole means everything. It means you have to be aware of your right ear, your left finger, your middle toe, and your liver. And it's impossible to be aware of your whole body. No one can do that. It means just the, the whole of the breath. And anyway, you learn... Okay, it's on this one over here. Here we go. So you see the whole of the breath. Uh, experience the whole body of breath, Sabakayapati Sangwedi. This refers to experiencing uh, the whole breath. And the Buddha actually says in the suttas, because in and out breathing is regarded by the Buddha as a body in the category of bodies. And the Buddha actually mentions that. So that part of the breath meditation doesn't mean you're aware of your physical body. It means you're aware of the whole breath from beginning to end. Your mindfulness is totally on the breath, nothing else. And then what happens, the, the next stage is... Uh, you learn to calm the breath as you breathe in and out. It becomes more peaceful. You don't do that 
It's just what happens when you don't interfere. The breath becomes more and more peaceful. You're aware of the whole breath. And because you're not doing anything, the metabolism goes down. You don't need so much breath. It becomes really, really smooth. That's the first of what the Buddha called the six, first four of the 16 stages of Anapanasati. Now what happens next is when you learn to experience joy, piti, as you breathe in and out, when you learn to experience pleasure, sukha, as you breathe in and out, when you learn to experience the mental formation of piti, sukha, as you breathe in and out, when you learn to calm the mental formation of piti, sukha, as you breathe in and out, those are the next four stages. And it's I'm reading through, this is from the Satipatthana. Mindfulness of breathing completes the four focuses of mindfulness. Don't ask yourself or ask me, what's the difference between pity and sukha? Because for most of you, they'll always come together. Yes, there are different things, but you only really know the difference later on through your experience. It's just joy and pleasure. I'm saying this now to show this is only fifth and sixth stages of mindfulness of breathing. You're starting to develop the pleasure, the delight when you're breathing. Just like you develop the delight in the body when you relax it. And the first thing to notice and to emphasize is this is what you're supposed to experience. Meditation becomes delightful, enjoyable, something you look forward to, not something you have to do because you're a senior monk, I better come and meditate, you know, to, you know, to show that I meditate. We enjoy meditating. Some of the best pleasures in the world, and this is where it starts. And the key here, when you learn to experience the mental formation, the chitta-sankara, or piti sukha as you breathe in and out. This is not the bodily feeling anymore. This is how the mind experiences the breath. That piti sukha, that joy, is not coming from the breath. It's hard to imagine the breath could be beautiful. It's just air going in and out. It can be kind of nice and soft and easy, but to be delightful, What's happening is the body is being subdued. The mind is being aroused. That sixth sense. And that's the source of the piti sukha. Just like I mentioned to you, when you start, your meditation starts to get this strong, you go outside, or even just in here, you see the, the bamboo floor. Have you noticed how extremely beautiful it is? Not just delightful. Not just, you know, like somebody selling bamboo floors says, see how nice this is? It's not just that, it's a wow. It's amazing. See all those lines and colours and how they they work together. You see beauty where you never expected to see it. I think many of you have heard this story. 
Okay, I'm going to say it. Uh, this will be my last story. Okay, today, because I've already gone over time, as usual. But it's worthwhile saying just how mindfulness can see beauty, how the pity sukha arises so strong anywhere. When you're having some good meditation, everything looks amazing. The first meditation retreat I ever did was in boarding houses in uh, Cambridge. These boarding houses where poor students stayed. And it was well known, this was in 1970, I think, the cooking in UK was terrible. Their, their cuisine was not like going to France or Italy. You know, they, people made fun of the cooks in UK. And this was in a boarding house for poor students. When I heard we're going to do the retreat there, I thought straight away, I'm going to take some sandwiches or something. Food is going to be terrible. But to my surprise and delight, the food was more delicious than even some of the food cooked by these really top chefs in the colleges. And that surprised me. I thought it was just good luck, my good karma. Later on I realised it had nothing to do with the chef. Who's the cook here? Is that Norlia? Where's Arka Norlia? Is she a good cook? No, she isn't. (laughs) Something else is happening. Because when those boarding house cooks were cooking for me, it was always really delicious and I thought this is impossible. What's happening? My mindfulness was getting strong enough that he started seeing the beauty in the cooking. After they boiled and steamed all those vegetables, the tiny amount of flavour, the residue, the tiny, almost insignificant remnant of taste, I could, I could be aware of. And it was enjoyable. It's amazing, and I say this with greatest respect to Wisaka and to Noria. Every cook we've ever had here, always, they make ordinary food, but it tastes more delicious because you're aware of it. You're not talking to the people next to you. You're more mindful. You can enjoy the flavour more. Anyway, the story I was going to tell, which is a gross story, but I like to leave after gross stories. That was not what goes into my mouth, what comes out the other end. <laughs> you know what's going on, you want to leave, you can't. <laughs> it's absolutely true. That sitting here meditating, on meditation retreat many years ago, some lovely meditation, it doesn't matter how lovely your meditation are, you still have your bodily functions to look after, so I went to the monks, not the monks, the male toilets opposite the laundry, you know, in the middle cabinet. I still remember where it was. So if any of you want to try this, the middle cabinet, the first one, not the end one, the middle one. <laughs> to do a number two. You'll know what number two is. I made a mistake. That after doing the business, instead of flushing it straight away, I decided to have a look at it. 
Have I told the story? No, for, not, this not this retreat, okay. <sighs> when I looked at that piece of SHIT floating in the water, never in my life have I seen something so beautiful. Check out yours the next time, if you have good meditation. Those, all those little balls all just formed together. And I compared it to like this sculpture by Michelangelo. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's a form, yes, but the way that the big pieces and the small pieces interacted, <laughs> it was all nice and round, and the shaping of it was like done by a, a genius. And the colors, it's not just one shade of brown. It's all different, deeper shades, darker shades, lighter shades. And the way they all interacted on the bottom of the, in the toilet bowl, it was actually exquisite. That was like some amazing painter, like even, not a Picasso, that's too gross. Someone much better like a, I don't know, like a landscape artist painted. It was absolutely amazing. And then I notice the fragrance. <laughs> you know, sometimes, you know, being a monk, you don't really smell that much. Uh, but, you know, when people come to see you, especially on big events, and then they, especially the ladies, they all use makeup and perfume and stuff, you get some amazing smells. I know when you go and visit my cave, I know when you've been, because I can smell it afterwards. I can, obviously, because, you know, your scent, your perfume, it's only a small cave, it lingers. <laughs> but this was something else. This was real, earthy, natural, <laughs> not false. The smell of what has just come out your backside. I don't know, people like, you know, natural things, earthy things. And that was actually real. And it wasn't disgusting at all. I don't know why people think it's disgusting. It's just like the smell of nature. And I, re I was standing there looking, going, wow, wow, it's amazing. And I really did think at the time of picking it up and showing it to each one on the retreat. <laughs> well, why not? It's beautiful. And I, to this day, I kind of regret having to press the button to flush it away. <laughs> it was a hard thing to do. And if I wasn't a monk and knew about renunciation and letting go, I don't think I would have been able to manage it. To press that button, no, I can't do it. How many have to actually press the button? There's other people waiting to get in the toilet. Okay, and I pressed it. And it flushed away, never to return again. That was sad. <laughs> and that was true. What it was doing is, I mean, this is one of the fellows, he's a, a physicist working in CERN on the big atom smasher there. I remember he wrote to me, he said, thank you for that story. I always wondered what beauty was. Beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. Beauty is in the strength of mindfulness of the beholder. 
the more aware you are, the more still you are, the more you can see beauty anywhere. To see a world in a grain of sand, a heaven in a wildflower. They're so tiny, the wildflowers. Hold infinity in the palm of your hand, and eternity in an hour. That was William Blake, one of my favorite poets. That's what happens when you're mindful. See eternity in an hour. I've already gone over an hour, so it's about time I stopped. Sadhu, sadhu, sadhu. I'll finish off Hanapana Sati another time. I never finish anything, do I? <laughs>